0: Hey there, Hit Parade listeners. What you're about to hear is part one of this episode. Part two will arrive in your podcast feed at the end of the month. Would you like to hear this episode all at once the day it drops? Sign up for Slate Plus. You can try it for a month for just one dollar, and it supports not only this show, but all of Slate's acclaimed journalism and podcasts. Just go to slate.com slash hitparadeplus. You'll get to hear every Hit Parade episode in full the day it arrives, plus Hit Parade The Bridge, our bonus episodes, with guest interviews, deeper dives on our episode topics, and pop chart trivia. Once again, to join, that's slate.com slash hitparadeplus. Thanks, and now please enjoy part one of this Hit Parade episode. Welcome to Hit Parade, a podcast of pop chart history from Slate magazine about the hits from coast to coast. I'm Chris Malanfi, chart analyst, pop critic, and writer of Slate's Why Is This Song Number One series. On today's show, 40 years ago this week, in January of 1982, America had a new number one song. Built out of a cutting edge digital rhythm track, it sounded both frigid and fiery. With icy, fluttery keyboards and a sizzling bassline, it was chilled out but club-ready, a perfect pop song to liven the dead of winter. The same week it topped Billboard's Hot 100 pop chart, the song also rose to number one on Billboard's Hot Soul singles chart which was pretty remarkable, because at a time when the R&B chart was at a peak of bespoke blackness, commanded by the likes of The Gap Band, Teddy Pendergrass, and Cool in the Gang, the two men who performed this number one R&B hit were white. With the song, I Can't Go For That, Daryl Hall and John Oates had, after a decade of recording together, finally achieved a dream. They had not only taken control of their music and become regular chart-toppers, they had also proven the universal appeal of what they called rock and soul. A seamless blend of black and white sounds that could cross over effortlessly all along the radio dial. But it really had been a slog to get there. Paul and Oates had spent the entire 70s trying a little bit of everything. Not being any one thing meant they did not naturally fit into any specific chart or radio format. They were urbane rockers yeah, me, me, oh. whose biggest hits sounded a lot like Silky Soul. Say- They took inspiration from the pop, rock, and R&B of the 60s. And yet, when they broke big, they couldn't have sounded more like the 80s. And they went on to dominate the charts at the peak of MTV and New Wave. At their height, when everything Hall and Oates touched turned to gold, cutting-edge dance and electronic producers wanted to work with them, and they just kept topping the charts. And even after they fell off, Hall and Oates' music was persistent and resonant. Re emerging with a millennial generation who admired their craft and their irresistible hooks. Today on Hit Parade, we come to honor Daryl Hall and John Oates, two independent-minded singer-songwriters who joined forces, stuck to their guns, dominated their era, and never lost their hunger for new sounds.
1: She's a man eater.
0: Man-eaters, try omnivores. The genre-resistant age we now live in, where Gen Z artists veer from pop to rap to punk and refuse to adhere to any one radio format, arguably, Hall and Oates got there first, defying rock convention and eradicating genre definitions before poptimism was a thing. And it all reached its apex when they topped a pair of Billboard charts simultaneously. And that's where your hit parade marches today, the week ending January 30th, 1982, when I Can't Go For That, No Can Do, by Daryl Hall and John Oates, hit number one on both the Hot 100 and Hot Soul Singles charts. It was also on the Dance Chart and the Album Rock Chart that week, too. Hall and Oates made their dreams come true. Their decade long experiment to define their own lane had, in fact, succeeded beyond their dreams. How did this pair from Philadelphia make rock and soul not only viable, but the sound of the 80s and beyond? In 2015, in yet another of its many articles ranking things, Rolling Stone listed what it considered the 20 greatest duos of all time. The magazine noted that the very form of the duo is unique, quote, less narcissistic than solo performers, but more intimate than a mere band, unquote. The Rolling Stone critics cast their net fairly wide, ranking not just hit-making duos like Simon and Garfunkel, but also acclaimed but low-selling pairs, like electropunk duo Suicide, producer Dream Team Robert Fripp and Brian Eno. And the fractious ex married couple Richard and Linda Thompson. There were duos who actually played virtually every instrument on their records, like the minimalist but raucous White Stripes, a former married couple turned faux brother and sister. Conversely, there were duos who were backed by armies of session musicians, like Steely Dan, the meticulously smooth studio creation of Donald Fagan and Walter Becker. Rolling Stone ranked rap's greatest duos, including Eric B and Rakim and, of course, Big Boy and Andre 3000, aka OutKast. Even the brother-sister duo The Carpenters, who in their 70s hit-making heyday were mostly scorned by critics. They too rightfully made Rolling Stones duo
1: ranking. I'm on the top of the world. Down on creation and the only explanation I can find.
0: And the top spot on Rolling Stones list, given their formative influence on generations of bands and harmony singers, went to the legendary brothers Phil and Don Everly. No argument here. Wake up, What I do have a bone to pick with, however, is the duo that's not ranked at all, an act that, by the way, had just been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame the year before this list was compiled, and yet, to Rolling Stone, they didn't even rate above the 20th ranked duo The Black Keys. Given the subject of this Hit Parade episode, you've probably already guessed. Yep, Daryl Hall and John Oates were blanked. I find this bizarre, and yet, in a way, predictable. The music critic establishment has long had a wary relationship with Hall and Oates, Several generations of listeners were taught to think of them as uber-commercial cheese merchants. As recently as a decade ago, even fans of Hall & Oates seemed almost apologetic about their fandom. Listen to these excerpts from a VH1 Behind the Music episode devoted to the duo that was released in 2010.
1: A lot of these kids have no sense of irony about the band. It's not a guilty pleasure for them.
2: I know, like, critically, they were never appreciated in their day as much as they should have been. If they're snooty
1: about them, f- them.
0: Clearly, Hall & Oates fans, and Hall and & Oates themselves, have their backs up after years of condescension. Mind you, the duo was rarely actively hated or became an easily loathed target on worst lists like, say, Kenny G or Nickelback. Even prior hit parade subject Billy Joel gets more vocal scorn from critics. But as that Rolling Stone ranking of duos proves, Hall and Oates are just easy to overlook. To so, so.
2: so.
0: But in the world of hit making. Hall and Oates are impossible to overlook. At their height in the 1980s, Casey Kasem said this about them. Holy hyperbole, Batman.
1: I'm Casey Kasem on American Top 40. Each decade of the rock and roll era seems to have had one dominant recording act on the Billboard singles chart. In the 50s, it was Elvis Presley. In the 60s, The Beatles. In the 70s, it was the Bee Gees. And now, in the 80s, a male duo has taken over. And here they are. At number one, the top act of the 80s so far, Daryl Hall and John Oates.
0: Yes, Hall and Oates really were that big, even if they were later eclipsed in 80s chart dominance by titans like Michael Jackson and Madonna. And... Okay, comparing Hall and Oates to Elvis or the Beatles was, even then, a little much. But Casey Kasem's analogy of the duo to the Bee Gees is much more apt. Both groups took a while to find themselves, longer even than the Beatles did. As we discussed in our BG's episode of Hit Parade, who could have predicted that a trio of white English brothers raised in Australia who first broke during the 60s British invasion would score their biggest hits singing R&B-flavored disco? In their first decade, the Gibbs had as many misses as hits before they found the sound that would bring them superstardom in the mid to late 70s. And then, as I noted, when the Bee Gees became uncool, the fall was particularly hard. The fall off of Holland Oates wasn't as abrupt, but like the Bee Gees, Hall and Oates are tied in the public imagination to a specific moment, a time of obligatory saxophone solos, kitschy early MTV videos, John Oates's peak 80s mustache, and hits that came with synthesized clapping. Like the Bee Gees, by straddling the cultural boundaries of music perceived as white and black, Hall and Oates were universally consumed, but perhaps held close by no one audience. Which results in a situation where some listeners think you have to enjoy hollow notes ironically, or as camp, or categorize them with trends they had nothing to do with. As we discussed in our Yacht Rock episode, the creators of that genre name have clarified that, despite the satirical appearance of Hall and Oates in the Yacht Rock video series as comic foils from the East Coast, and the doobie bounce of a couple of their hits, Hall and Oates are not Yacht Rock. And that is the last time you'll hear me use the Y word in this episode. What Daryl Hall and John Oates were, and are, can't be reduced to kitsch. As we'll detail in this episode, they traveled in hipper circles than you may realize, especially Daryl, whose voice is prized by artists across the musical spectrum. And in their way, Hall and Oates were post-genre pioneers, A pair of distinctive singer-songwriters, each with his own sensibility. By the way, they prefer to be known as Daryl Hall and John Oates. On many of their album covers, they even leave off the and. They joined forces to mix up their varied influences while remaining individuals. And they never wanted to be classified as any one thing which makes sense when you consider where they came from. Like so many pieces of rock and roll history, Chubby Checker's 1960 number one smash, The Twist, originated in Philadelphia on local label Cameo Parkway and on Dick Clark's Philly-based show, American Bandstand. One year later, so did the DeVelles' number two smash, The Bristol Stomp, another dance craze single on Cameo Parkway, named for the Bristol suburb of Philadelphia.
2: Lady,
1: like
0: this was the melting pot, young Daryl Franklin Hall, spelled H O H L and young John William Oates grew up around in the 1950s and 60s. They would later cite these records as formative to their upbringing in The City of Brotherly Love, where the Black Chubby Checker and the white duop group the Devels not only coexisted but competed on the charts. Born a year apart in 1946 and 47, respectively, Hall and Oates each grew up in a North Philly suburb. Hall was born in Pottstown, and Oates, born in New York City, moved with his family to North Wales, Pennsylvania at age five. Both were playing in doo and soul groups while still in high school both independently enrolled in Temple University, which finally brought them into the city of Philadelphia itself. And by the mid-1960s, each man began recording.
1: This
0: 1966 single... I Need Your Love, is by The Masters, an all-purpose rock and soul group fronted by John Oates, who picked up the guitar as a kid after giving up the accordion. Over five years of playing both covers and originals, Oates had tried his hand at everything from Motown and James Brown covers to Coffeehouse Folk. By 1967, his future partner was singing on wax, too.
2: This 1967
0: single is Girl, I Love You, sung by Daryl Hall he would finally change the spelling of his name to H-A-L-L and credited to a group called the Temp Tones. Hall had an exceptional tenor voice nurtured by his mother, who was a professional vocal coach. And why was his mid-60s group named the Temp Tones? Hall himself explained it to VH1.
1: Temptations were our Beatles, you know, they were like
0: the gods because they were the best vocal group in the world at the time. Paul actually befriended members of the Temptations, including Paul Williams and David Ruffin, when they passed through Philadelphia to play the Uptown Theater. Among the local industry figures Daryl befriended and impressed were legendary Philly producers Kenny Gamble, Leon Huff, and Tom Bell, who would revolutionize sophisticated soul in the 70s and, by the mid 60s, were already producing vocal groups like the Delphonics. sang backup for some early Gamble Huff and Tom Bell recordings. However, the first recording to make the national billboard charts to feature Daryl Hall had no vocals at all. The fluke number 16 hit, Keem Osabe, by the Philly instrumental studio band, The Electric Indian. Hall played keyboards. Given all the parallels in Daryl Hall's and John Oates's upbringing, the way they finally met is oddly improbable. It wasn't in a Philly studio session or at Temple University. It was at a gig, but not while either one of them was performing. It was a 1967 multi-act radio showcase at West Philly's Adelphi Ballroom. Acts from various Philadelphia labels were all there, like Chicago's The Five Stairsteps and local hitmaker Howard Tate.
1: You go,
2: go.
0: Also there to perform were The Temptones, featuring Daryl Hall, and The Masters, featuring John Oates. But As they were all waiting backstage, a fight broke out between rival gangs, and someone pulled a gun. Daryl and John ran to get out of the way. In some versions of this apocryphal story, they each bolted for a freight elevator. And when the hubbub died down, they made small talk. They realized they both went to Temple and said maybe they should hang out sometime. Hall and Oates would then spend the next several years rooming together in various apartments around Philadelphia, while each man tried to make his recording career happen. For the rest of the 60s, nothing quite took off. Hall joined several more Philly soul groups and continued playing sessions, while Oates played with country bluesman Jerry Ricks and, briefly, a band called Valentine, led by Frank Stallone. Yes, Sly's brother. In one fluke gig, Hall joined singer-songwriter Tim Moore's band Gulliver, who got signed to Elektra Records and issued one self-titled studio album in 1970 marked by groovy, psychedelic pop. It didn't sell. It was around this time that Daryl and John, who'd been roommates off and on for three years, Oates even briefly lived with Hall and his first wife, and playing with each other mostly for fun, Decided to actually record together. By 1970, they had gone full hippie with long hair down to their shoulders. And their earliest work sounded more like John Oates's trippy folk and blues experiments than anything to do with Philly Soul. played their first club show together in December 1970 as Daryl Hall and John Oates. At one point, they considered naming their project Whole Oats, spelled the normal way, without the E, unlike John's last name. They even played a few gigs under the Whole Oats moniker. But after signing with a scrappy young manager in 1971, I'll get to him in a minute, and signing to Atlantic Records, Hall and Oates decided instead that Whole Oats would be the name of their debut album.
1: Now the night is over and I waiting for the day we
0: can From the jump, Hall and Oates worked with great producers. Their Atlantic debut was produced by Arif Mardin, who had produced Dusty Springfield's celebrated Dusty in Memphis LP, and who would later guide the disco breakthrough of the Bee Gees? On Whole Oats, Martin guided Hall and Oats toward a plush, folk inflected sound with soulful overtones. All Music's Stephen Thomas Erlewine, who has written extensively on the duo, said, quote, Some of the album's haziness derives from the fact that, at the time of its recording, Hall and Oates were essentially two singer-songwriters playing their own tunes in tandem. Unquote. Indeed, the LP veered from more of Oates's folky musings, like Southeast City Window, to the Hall-penned Water on which he echoed Joni Mitchell.
1: I heard you call me water, we'll spin round, round in a circle
0: When Whole Oats failed to chart, Hall and Oats pulled up stakes and moved from Philadelphia to New York City. Where they would wind up making the bulk of their future albums. Producer Arif Martin corralled a bunch of studio pros in New York to back them up on their second album. This approach worked. On 1973's Abandoned Luncheonette LP, the duo would sound less like a pair of individual folkies and more like Hall and Oates, a collective identity. It is perhaps ironic, though, that this New York-based album generated a track that very clearly evoked the sound of Philly soul. It would also turn out to be Hall and Oates' first signature song. But it's consolation. She's Gone was a true collaboration, a song that evoked breakups both men were going through in their move to New York. John Oates started it on acoustic guitar as a bluesy lament one night when a girlfriend stood him up. Then Daryl Hall, whose first marriage was falling apart, transformed it on his keyboard into something closer to R&B. It also featured very distinctive octave-based harmonies that showcased both men's
1: voices. I need a, drink and a quick
0: Released as the first single from Abandoned Luncheonette in November of 73, She's Gone took months to connect. It broke on the charts in February of 1974, rising to a modest number 60 on the Hot 100. That finally nudged Abandoned Luncheonette onto Billboard's top LP's chart, the first Hall & Oates album to make the chart. But it only got as high as number one
1: hundred and ninety two.
0: So a single that missed the top 40, an album that just barely cracked the charts. She's Gone was an amazing song and a vocal showcase, especially for Daryl Hall. But that would not be the end of the story for the album, or most especially, that song. A group of five brothers signed to Capitol Records, Tavares, recorded a cover of She's Gone in the summer of 1974. Tavares producer Dennis Lambert loved the Holland Oats version so much he replicated its arrangement almost exactly, reinforcing that the song was R&B to its
1: core.
0: By December 74, the Tavares version of She's Gone reached number one on Billboard's Hot Soul Singles chart. It was, in a way, prophetic. The first chart a Hall & Oates song topped was the R&B chart. It wouldn't be the last time for that either. and one percent on anything you buy with your titanium apple card or virtual card number visit apple.co card calculator to see how much you can earn apple card issued by goldman sachs bank usa salt lake city branch subject to credit approval terms apply R&B was not how Hall & Oates were being marketed in 1973 and 74. The band was opening for white rock acts, including David Bowie on his Ziggy Stardust tour. In addition to playing rock shows, they were attending them as well, at the very moment punk was starting to break in New York. Daryl Hall recalled, quote, I was going to the Mercer Arts Center and seeing the New York Dolls and those kinds of bands. And I'm a looking for a cheer. I wrote a bunch of songs that reflected the chaos of that scene unquote. So for their third album, they teamed with an old friend from Philadelphia who had just produced the first New York dolls album, The iconoclastic Todd Rundgren. Time has a
1: gun. Take the
0: Run Grim produced what turned out to be Hall and Oates' most experimental rock album, 1974's progressive, utopia like LP, War Babies.
1: Oh, 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 baby G. And your
0: In essence, War Babies was an act of willful commercial suicide. Hall & Oates were annoyed with Atlantic Records for under-promoting Abandoned Luncheonette, which had earned universal critical acclaim. War Babies did manage to reach number 86 on the LP chart, but Atlantic fed up with Hall & Oates' identity crisis. Were they folk, R&B, prog rock? Dropped the duo. Hall & Oates' parting gift to the label was a final single, it's Uncanny, that sounded like Billy Joel crossed with the Doobie Brothers. It peaked at number 80 on the Hot
1: 100.
0: Truth be told, they wanted to get dropped. Hall and Oates were already eyeing a better deal at another label, one that had been arranged by their energetic hustler of a manager.
1: Gino said, Remember
0: means something. Perhaps you've heard the name Tommy Mottola. Hall and Oates called him Little Gino, and they even wrote the song Gino the Manager about him. Mottola's wheeler-dealer reputation was so legendary by the mid-70s that the disco group Dr. Buzzard's original Savannah Band referenced him by name in a song.
2: Tommy lives on the road.
0: Most likely, you've heard of Tommy Matola from his success two decades later with his discovery, Mariah Carey who famously became his wife and then, infamously, his ex-wife. But I digress. Hall and Oates were Tommy Mottola's first success. They signed with him back in 1971 when Mottola was 21 and barely even a manager. It was he who got them signed to Atlantic in 72, then dropped by Atlantic in 75. He was pleased when War Babies flopped because it cleared Hall & Oates to sign with RCA Records. They recorded a new LP for RCA right away, produced by studio guitarist Christopher Bond. The self-titled album became better known, thanks to its metallic cover, as the Silver Album. That LP jacket was famous for more than its color. In a cover photo taken by David Bowie stylist Pierre Laroche, Hall and Oates appear in heavy, glamorous makeup, styled as women. Only John's mustache breaks the gender-bending illusion. Daryl, in particular, makes an especially comely woman. He later joked that he looked like the kind of woman he would want to date. Though the cover led to blowback from certain narrow-minded rock fans who made homophobic insinuations about the duo's sexual identity, it was in keeping with the look of glam rock at the time, and the notoriety might have helped. The Daryl Hall and John Oates album debuted on the LP chart in the fall of 75, even as its first couple of singles flopped. Both RCA and the artists were convinced that either Camellia or Alone Too Long were the potential hits on the LP. Alone Too Long even briefly cracked the R&B chart at a lowly number 98. Hall in particular rebuffed those who suggested the album's best track was a gentle, pillowy ballad he had written for his girlfriend. But then, a DJ in Cleveland, Lynn Tolliver, began playing that ballad as an album cut, and he proved Daryl Hall wrong. Baby
2: hair, with eyes I can feel you watching in the night
0: Sarah Smile was named for Sarah Allen, who was more than Hall's companion. In 1973, when Hall began seeing her, she was a flight attendant. Hall wrote a song on Abandoned Luncheonette called Las Vegas Turnaround, the stewardess song, about her.
1: Sarah's off on a turnaround, flying gambling fools to the holy land Las Vegas. But
0: after several years living with Daryl and hanging around as he and John worked on songs, Sarah Allen began chiming in with lyrical and other musical ideas. To their credit, rather than regarding Allen as an interloper, Hall and Oates brought her in as a credited songwriter. Starting with the Silver album, Sarah Allen's name began appearing in the liner notes of their LPs. She became both Hall's lover and professional collaborator, roles she would go on to play for over 20 years. And on what turned out to be the duo's breakthrough hit, she was Daryl's muse. After Lynn Tolliver began playing it, Sarah's smile spread from Cleveland to other cities. RCA belatedly issued it as the third single from the Daryl Hall and John Oates LP. It rose all the way to number four on the Hot 100 in June of 1976. It even made it to number 23 on the R&B chart, this time under Hall and Oates' own names. And the languishing LP finally rose into the top 20 and went gold. In a move to recoup their investment in the now-hit act, Atlantic, Hall & Oates' old label, reissued She's Gone as a single. The slow-burning lament now sounded like a natural follow-up to the soulful Sarah Smile. Casey Kasem counted it down.
1: You know, back in 1974, Daryl Hall and John Oates wrote and recorded a song that became their first chart record. It peaked at number 60 on the pop chart. Then a half a year later, Tavares covered the record, getting up to number 50, and going all the way to number one on the soul chart. This week, two and a half years later, after it was first released, Hall and Oates debut on the 40 with their original recording of that song. Coming in at number 39, it's called, She's Gone. Everybody's consolation
0: She's Gone, the original version, would peak at number 7 on the Hot 100 by the fall of 76. The abandoned Luncheonette album re-entered the LP chart and cracked the top 40, going gold in October, by which time there was now a new Hall & Oates album in music shops, Recording again with Chris Bond, the duo tried to emulate the rock and soul sound that had finally broken them.
2: Do what you want, girl. Be what you are.
0: When Bigger Than Both of Us dropped in the late summer of 1976, the duo and the label again had a hard time choosing a single. In an effort to emulate the revived She's Gone, they issued the slow-burning Do What You Want, Be What You Are, but it only reached number 39. And then, in the winter of 77, they released a new, more up-tempo and much snarkier single, and it obliterated anything Hall and Oates had released to this point you
2: girl, and you gone too far, cause you know it don't matter
0: anyway here's the funny story about Rich Girl. Daryl Hall wrote it about a rich boy. Hall later told the story to American songwriter quote. It was about an old boyfriend of Sarah's from college. He came to our apartment, and he was acting sort of strange. His father was quite rich, I think, with some kind of a fast food chain. I thought, this guy is out of his mind, but he doesn't have to worry about it, cause his father's gonna bail him out of any problems he gets in. So I sat down and wrote that chorus. He can rely on the old man's money. He's a rich guy. I thought that didn't sound right, so I changed it to Rich Girl, but he knows the song was written about him. Unquote. Again, Hall and Oates did best with the songs that evoked their hometown background. Rich Girl was pure Philly soul with the kind of lush strings Kenny Gamble, Leon Huff, and Tom Bell had made a chart staple. For Hall and Oates, it was a chart juggernaut. By March 1977, Rich Girl had become their first number one hit. By April, Daryl Hall and John Oates were on the cover of Rolling Stone. Three of their albums were gold, and all three had been riding the LP chart simultaneously. If you know where the Hall & Oates story is headed from here, you might think it's an instant road to platinum. But that's not how the late 70s turned out. The duo's identity crisis persisted, even after topping the charts. 77 album Beauty on a Backstreet, producer Chris Bond insisted on recording Hall & in a stripped-down style that echoed current rock titans like the Eagles or Kansas. It was a bad fit, a failed effort to nudge Hall & in the direction of album rock. Since they were not really going for pop airplay, Beauty on a Backstreet singles were stiffs, why Do Lovers Break Each Other's Heart peaked at number 78, and Don't Change missed the Hot 100 entirely. Now that you got
1: me, please don't change, change. don't change.
0: change, Hall and Oates were, in essence, back to square one. Sensing an opportunity, Daryl Hall decided to try an experiment. Without breaking up with Oates, he would pause for a solo album. And Daryl, after the conservatism of his recent work with Chris Bond, was eager to make a hard left turn, one even more unpredictable than War Babies. King Crimson leader Robert Fripp. The subversive British progressive rocker and thinking person's guitar hero, according to AllMusic, had befriended Daryl Hall in the early 70s, and he kept up with him whenever he visited England. Impressed with Hall's supple voice, Fripp pledged to work with him someday. In 1977, Robert Fripp made good on that pledge.
1: Between 1977
0: and '79, Robert Fripp recorded a trio of albums that he considered his pop trilogy, accessible by his standards, but experimental for the artists fronting the projects. The first of the three albums was a solo LP for Daryl Hall, on which Fripp invited such musicians as Brian Eno and bassist Tony Levin of King Crimson to perform. <laughs> The next year, Fripp brought many of these same musicians to work on Peter Gabriel's self-titled 1978 sophomore album, which echoed the sound of Daryl Hall's solo album. And the year after that, Robert Fripp brought in both Peter Gabriel and Daryl Hall to sing on Exposure, Fripp's own solo debut outside of King Crimson. Hall sang lead on several tracks, including the punky rave-up You Burn Me Up, I'm a Cigarette, You
1: burn me up, I'm a cigarette, Life with you is a
0: lose, and the positively ethereal, almost freeform, North Star. Now This was all miles away from She's Gone and Rich Girl, and it weirded out RCA. Truthfully, Hall's album was the most accessible of the Robert Fripp trilogy, but when Hall presented his solo LP to the label in 1977 under the title Sacred Songs... RCA balked. They would not release it, claiming it would unsettle the Hall & Oates fan base. Sacred Songs would remain unreleased for three years. Quote, they thought I was getting weird on them, Hall later said. They got scared and didn't want to lose their investment. It didn't sound like Hall & Oates, and it wasn't supposed to. To me, it's a pretty straight ahead album. Dutifully returning to the fold, Hall recorded two more 70s albums with John Oates that continued the search for their next sound. Produced by L.A.-based journeyman David Foster, 1978's Along the Red Ledge did generate a top-20 hit in the mellow It's Allowed. Paula & leaned back toward a more disco-fied version of Philly Soul on I Don't Wanna Lose You, which just missed the top 40.
1: Don't wanna like I don't wanna lose you.
0: David Foster manned the boards as they went even deeper into disco on 1979's album, Ecstatic, on the club-crazy Who Said the World Was Fair if there's enough to go around,
1: if there's enough to go around, why can I get
0: my and the disco rock hybrid portable radio come on and listen to the radio, hey, turn up the power, power, radio, hey, rockin' for hours and hours and hours but none of this connected on the radio or the charts Ecstatic landed in the middle of the 1979 disco backlash, and it became Hall & Oates' first album not to go gold since 1974's War Babies. The only thing salvaging the LP and ushering the duo into the 80s was a soulful rocker called Wait For Me. It peaked at number 18 on the Hot 100 in January of 1980. And Wait For Me's crisp sound suggested how Hall and Oates might move forward. The next month, Daryl and John had a long talk with their manager, Tommy Mottola insisting that they wanted to produce themselves from here on. Even after working with pros from Arif Martin to Todd Rundgren to David Foster, they felt if they couldn't define their sound themselves, they shouldn't be making music. Matola agreed. Quote, You're absolutely right, he said, and we have nothing to lose. Their first move was convincing RCA to belatedly issue Daryl's Sacred Songs LP. When it finally arrived in stores in March 1980, it did decently, reaching number 58 and even selling a little better than a couple of Hall & Oates' 70s LPs. Yes! Important, that 1977 recording, with its uncluttered, new wavy Frippertronics production, would inspire the sound of 1980's Voices, the self-produced LP that would become Hall & Oates' blockbuster. It helped that both men, assisted by their co-songwriter Sarah Allen, were writing strong material, such as Daryl's love ballad Every Time You Go Away. For Voice's lead single, as a statement of purpose, they chose the John Oates penned mid-tempo rocker How Does It Feel To Be Back. it reached number 30 on the Hot 100. Then, hedging their bets a bit, the duo followed it up with a cover, the first of their singles ever not to be written by one of them. Hall & Oates' take on the Righteous Brothers' You've Lost That Love and Feelin', still a radio staple to this day, rose to number 12 in November, 1980. What's remarkable about these two good but fairly unambitious singles was what Hall and Oates were holding in reserve. A song so catchy, it was like a Control alt delete reboot of the duo's entire career. When we come back, Daryl Hall and John Oates define the 80s, the MTV era, and Blue-Eyed Soul, entering the record books in one of the greatest imperial runs in chart history. The lane they built turned out to be a superhighway. Non-Slate Plus listeners will hear the rest of this episode in two weeks. For now, I hope you've been enjoying this episode of Hit Parade. Our show was written, edited, and narrated by Chris Malanfi. That's me. My producer is Asha Saluja. Special thanks this month for research support from Matt Shady-Wardlaw and Stephen Thomas-Earlwine. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Check out their roster of shows at slate.com podcasts. You can subscribe to Hit Parade wherever you get your podcasts, in addition to finding it in the Slate Culture feed. If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us while you're there. It helps other listeners find the show. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to leading the hit parade back your way. We'll see you for part two in a couple of weeks. Until then, keep on marching on the one. I'm Chris Melanfinger.